Can you dream of a world immune to cancer? Hello everyone, my name is Nick and I'm the host of the annual live stream for The Cure where content creators and podcasters from around the world join me to raise money for the Cancer Research Institute and Immunotherapy Research, which is training the body's immune system to fight against all forms of cancer. Over the past seven years, thanks to the power of indie podcasters and the indie podcasting community and listeners just like you listening to this right now, we have raised over $90,000. And as I record this now, the eighth annual live stream for The Cure is barreling down upon us really, really quickly in just about two weeks. So join us, please, from May 29th through June 1st for 48 hours of amazing content from people all over the world and help us fight for a world immune to cancer. I'll now return you to your regularly scheduled programming. Thank you so, so much. And together, we can make a difference. Is that just the wind or is it some furious vexation? In a world overflowing with movies, we need a hero. Someone to separate the bad from the good. Hi everyone, I'm Em and welcome to Verbal Diorama episode 105, Mad Max Fury Road. This is the podcast that's all about the history and legacy of movies you know and movies you don't. A huge hi and welcome to you all, whether you're a returning listener or a brand new listener to this podcast. Basically, no matter how you got here, whether that's via the Fury Road or not, it's great that you are here. Thank you so much for being here. And... As always, if you are a regular listener, thank you so much for previous feedback on episodes that have kind of been and gone. So The Frighteners literally just celebrated its 25th anniversary and it felt very low-key. I mean, it would be low-key because it's a movie like The Frighteners and I really do feel like that movie does not get the credit it deserves. But it kind of happened to coincide a little bit with the release that I did on The Frighteners And that was a complete coincidence, but I'm glad that I got in on that because people were actually talking about The Frighteners and reminiscing about it. And so, yeah, that was really nice to have that. But for this episode specifically, Mad Max Fury Road is quite apt for a few reasons. So obviously it's referenced in The Mitchells vs. The Machines, which was the previous episode. And I'm recording this in the middle of a heatwave here in the UK because... Contrary to popular belief, there is occasionally heat in this country. We are very famous for our rain and for our general kind of doom and gloom with regards to the weather. But this week we're actually having quite a big heat wave. And so I guess it feels very much like we're in the desert. I mean, it's kind of humid heat, but whatever, you know what I mean. And so... Doing Mad Max Fury Road in the middle of a heat wave <laughs> just feels like some sort of weird destiny. And to be honest, I just really love this movie anyway. And, you know, Jess does too. She's not here right now. But for a long time, she thought it was called Mad Max Furry Road. Uh, and I'll be honest, whenever I tend to type it out, 
uh, especially on my phone. My phone autocorrects it to Mad Max Furry Road all the time. It's really annoying. But, you know, I've had the conversation with Jess. She knows it's not about furry stuff. I think she's okay with that. But anyway, Jess is my cat, by the way. Just in case you're a new listener and you're wondering, well, who's Jess? Jess is my cat. Uh, She features a little bit on this podcast. So, yeah, regular listeners will get that. But anyway, anyway, I feel like I'm definitely talking too much about my cat for a Mad Max movie. So, let's guarantee ourselves a spot in Valhalla as we listen to the trailer for Mad Max Fury Road. In this wasteland, I am the one who runs from both the living... (laughs) And the dead. A man reduced to a single instinct. Survive. It is by my hand! You arise! From the ashes of this world! civilization, the tyrannical Immortan Joe enslaves apocalyptic survivors inside the desert fortress, the Citadel. When the warrior Imperator Furiosa leads the despot's five wives in a daring escape, she forges an alliance with Max Rokotansky, a loner and former captive. Fortified in the massive armoured truck, the war rig, they try to outrun the ruthless warlord and his henchmen in a deadly high-speed chase through the wasteland. Let's go through the cast of this movie. We have Tom Hardy as Max Rokotansky, Charlie Theron as Imperator Furiosa, Nicholas Holt as Nooks, Hugh Keysburn as Immortan Joe, Rosie Huntington-Whiteley as the Splendid Ang Harrod, Nathan Jones as Rictus Erectus, Riley Keough as Capable, Zoe Kravitz as Toast the Knowing, Abby Lee as the Dag, Courtney Eaton as Cheeto the Fragile, and Josh Hellman as Slit. 
Mad Max Fury Road was written by George Miller, Brendan McCarthy and Nico Lathoris and it was directed by George Miller. And Mad Max, I kind of feel like needs little introduction, but that's what I'm here for, so I'm going to do it anyway. Created in the late 1970s by George Miller and Byron Kennedy, the franchise started with 1979's Mad Max and was followed in 1981 by Mad Max 2, also called The Road Warrior, and Mad Max Beyond Thunderdome came out in 1985. All three were directed by George Miller, with Beyond Thunderdome directed by George Miller and Georgia Gilvey. The original Mad Max held a Guinness World Record for decades as the most profitable film ever created, having been made for just 400,000 Australian dollars and earning more than 100 million US dollars worldwide. Max Rokotansky, a future Australian police officer, kills a biker gang to seek revenge for the murder of his wife and child, becoming a drifting loner in the Australian wastelands as the world collapses into war, resources begin to dwindle and the country devolves further into barbarity and desolation. Mad Max 2, in particular, is often hailed as one of the greatest action films of all time. Creator director George Miller likes to diversify his body of work. He's most famous for Mad Max, but he's also directed other non-Mad Max-style movies, including The Witches of Eastwick, Lorenzo's Oil, Babe, Pig in the City, both Happy Feet movies, as well as writing and producing the movie Babe. But we're here to talk about Mad Max Fury Road. So let's talk about the tumultuous development of Mad Max Fury Road. And I warn you, on this journey, whiplash is very possible because we're going to be going back and forth quite a lot. So following Beyond Thunderdome's release in 1985, George Miller had an idea for a fourth instalment in the Mad Max story in 1987, which was an almost continuous chase. So that was basically his premise, a continuous chase. Plans for this fourth Mad Max movie hit the brakes, so to speak, when the franchise hit financial difficulties and the project languished in development hell for several years with no further thought given to this idea of a continuous chase. About a year later, Miller expanded on this original idea while travelling from Los Angeles to Australia and the story became about violent marauders who were fighting not for material goods but for human beings. Originally set to shoot in 2001, the movie was delayed by 20th Century Fox Firstly, due to the September 11th terrorist attacks in New York, and then again in 2003. The project was greenlit to shoot in Australia and Namibia in May 2003, without anti-Semite, homophobe and domestic abuser Mel Gibson, but with a $100 million budget. And then the Iraq war halted that production due to tighten travel and shipping restrictions. When the shoot didn't go ahead as planned, Miller moved on to Happy Feet, but the thousands of storyboards remained for Mad Max 4. Fast forward to November 2006 and George Miller is still insistent that Mad Max 4 will happen and confirmed that Mel Gibson again would not be involved. He co-wrote a screenplay with British comic creator Brendan McCarthy, who's most well known for his work on the Judge Dredd comics for 2000 AD. And Dredd is episode three of this podcast, by the way. Heath Ledger was in contention for the role of Max Rokotansky for this particular adaptation prior to his death in 2008. And just moving forwards a little bit, in the adaptation of the script that was eventually filmed, the one that we're going to talk about, Vagina Monologues playwright Eve Enslot served as a consultant to ensure the female characters were fully developed and that the production understood the headspace and trauma of women in abusive codependent relationships and in the sex trafficking trade as well, having been the survivor of both sex trafficking and abuse herself. Ensler would go on to say Fury Road was and I quote, a feminist action film, but I'm kind of going a bit ahead of me. So let's go back. Let's go back again. 
In March 2009, the plans changed again for the Mad Max 4 project, and it was going to become an animated feature. It would be taking much of Mad Max 4's plot and started pre-production for a 2011-2012 release date alongside a video game tie-in. After exploring the possibility of animation, George Miller basically declined that idea in May 2009 and announced location scouting was underway for a live-action Mad Max 4 once again, with Warner Brothers taking over the production. By the time October 2009 came around, principal photography would take place in Broken Hill, New South Wales, Australia. That same month, Tom Hardy was in negotiations for the lead role of Max Rokotansky, with Charlize Theron also in talks for a major role. Hardy's participation was confirmed by the actor in June 2010. I think it's pretty clear by now that the concept of Mad Max 4 was a bit kind of stop-start, so to speak. Uh, the plans were constantly changing and evolving, and this theme is going to continue throughout this episode. So in July 2010, Miller announced he would be shooting two Mad Max movies back-to-back, -back, Mad Max Fury Road and Mad Max Furiosa, Weta Digital was announced to be handling the film's special effects, production design, makeup and costume design when the production commenced in November 2010, until, yet again, the brakes came on and both of these Mad Max movies were postponed and at this point Weta Digital left the project. A year later, this is November 2011, it was announced they were no longer going to be shooting the movie in Australia as Broken Hill, which is usually arid desert, experienced unexpected heavy rainfall and wildflowers started to grow in the area. So rather than affect the natural space and get rid of these flowers, the production decided to move to Namibia after scouting other locations in Chile, Tunisia and Azerbaijan. Principal photography finally started on Mad Max Fury Road in July 2012 at the Dorob National Park in Namibia without any shots of the Citadel, I'm going to come back to that in a little bit, and wrapped in December 2012. So it would be a six-month shoot pretty much and it would be a tumultuous shoot not only for the extreme temperature but also sand and windstorms. So shooting in the winter months didn't help with the weather despite it looking warm Freezing conditions were commonplace. It was especially tough on the actors playing Immortan Joe's wives. They were all young, fairly inexperienced actors who genuinely didn't know they were signing up for such an intense, physically demanding shoot. Riley Keough, who is also the granddaughter of Elvis Presley, by the way, ended up with hypothermia on the shoot. Even the experienced cast members like Charlize Theron admitted the production was essentially driven by fear due to the extreme nature of the environment as well as sometimes struggling to understand George Miller's vision. So she would come round to Miller's way of thinking eventually, but it's something that Tom Hardy would struggle with. And it's something that Tom Hardy would eventually, after the movie wrapped, apologise to George Miller for not fully believing and understanding in the director's vision, because ultimately what we got was something quite incredible. It wasn't just the environment that was harsh either. All of the women would do exercises to fully understand the depth of the depravity of the wives' situation. Despite none of the sexual abuse being filmed, the actors wrote letters to their captor to build the empathy and understanding necessary to fully encompass what these women were actually running from. So it was a physically demanding shoot, it was a mentally demanding shoot, it was an emotionally demanding shoot, but I genuinely think that adds to the experience that we actually eventually will see on screen. When it came to filming in the Namibian desert, the production actually had to put hidden roads in the desert to accommodate the filming and carve access ways so that the 600 strong cast and crew 
could actually access the area as well as 150 vehicles that would need to also access the area. They ended up creating 300 or 400 fake boulders and rocks to cover any trees or plant life. As the Dorob National Park is a protected area, crashes couldn't actually affect the real environment. And so any actual crashes that you see on screen only happened against fake rocks and stone rather than real stone. I'll come back to the various troubles on set in a little bit, but I think we need to talk about what makes Fury Road so memorable and truly awe-inspiring. And I mean, it does a lot of things that are memorable and awe-inspiring in this movie. Things like the production design, the practical effects and stunt work. Production designer Colin Gibson designed all of the film's vehicles, all of which were fully functional vehicles. Construction of some of these vehicles started way back in 2003 when the project was originally greenlit for the first time. All of the vehicles were designed to show characterization and basically civilizations attempt to recycle so much of what they used to have. A total of 150 vehicles were constructed for Fury Road and 88 survived to the end of filming. The ones that didn't survive were designed to be destroyed so they would come apart at certain points. So basically they would blow up quite spectacularly. I mean the explosions in this movie are really quite spectacular. The most famous vehicle probably in the movie, there's a lot of famous vehicles in this movie, but the war rig is probably the most memorable one. It was made from a Tatra 815, a Chevrolet Fleetmaster and a Volkswagen Beetle. Because if you're going to be making one long chase sequence, you need the vehicles in which to chase. Gibson also researched ancient fortresses and sanctuaries such as Petra in Jordan to design the citadel and to envisage what a futuristic wasteland might look and feel like. And I mentioned the citadel earlier and that the scenes of the citadel weren't actually filmed. So the scenes with the citadel were actually filmed after production ended. So the citadel scenes were supposed to be originally filmed in Namibia in a dry river canyon, along with the rest of the original shooting schedule. And what happened was then president of Warner Brothers, Jeff Robinoff, flew to Namibia to check on the shoot and wasn't happy with what he found and he ordered the production to shut down on December the 8th no matter what. So when December the 8th eventually came around the scenes at the Citadel were never shot. So the movie had a middle but it had no beginning or end and when it came to editing the movie Margaret Sixel, who is also George Miller's wife had the unenviable task of finishing a film without an ending or actually a beginning. They thought of a voiceover to try and fill in the gaps, but what actually happened was fate intervened instead because Jeff Robinoff then lost his job at Warner Brothers and he was replaced by Kevin Sujahara. Kevin Sujahara decided that they had to finish the movie they were making and basically started the production back up. Vehicles were flown from Namibia to Australia. Tom Hardy and Charlize Theron were brought back and eight months later in late 2013, they rebuilt the Citadel in an empty reservoir in Sydney and they finally shot those before and after scenes in the Citadel that actually make it into the movie. Which is quite incredible, really, to me, that A, those scenes were never shot in the first place and B, I mean, you'd never tell. You genuinely wouldn't. And all of the praise for the editing in this movie is down to Margaret Sixel. She actually worked through 480 hours worth of footage. It actually took three months just to watch those 480 hours and she edited that down to an 120 minute film, which is incredible just on its own. It's, it'd be really interesting to see 
all of that footage and what all of that footage does and says. That is a lot of footage for a movie like this. The frame rate also changes in this movie. It basically depends on the action in the scene. So George Miller wanted scenes where you couldn't easily understand what was happening to be slowed down from the usual 24 frames per second. When it was clear what was going on in the scene, the frame rate was then increased. And George Miller is obviously no stranger to effects heavy movies, movies like Happy Feet, which is obviously completely CGI, and also Babe as well, which also is a movie with plenty of effects. But he really wanted to go back to his practical action movie roots on Fury Road. He and Colin Gibson decided they wanted to make the last real action film complete with intricate stunt work, despite Miller actually being a doctor in real life. So George Miller has signed the Hippocratic Oath, which basically means he will never intentionally hurt anyone. So if you're a director and you've signed the Hippocratic Oath, how do you wrestle with potentially putting stunt people in danger? And how does this work when you have a large group of vehicles, each made out of parts of other vehicles, all running at a high speed with a large group of people, then essentially it's your responsibility as a director to keep safe and well. And the stunts and the choreography in this movie are beyond anything that I think Hollywood will ever attempt ever again because this is so based in practical effects. And to be honest, this is the bread and butter of verbal diorama right here in this movie. It really is. Which is, again, one of the reasons why I've held off talking about it, because I was like, I want to leave this movie till a certain point where I feel like I can properly deal with the brilliance of this movie. It reached a point where I was like, no, I really do need to talk about this. I can't hold this off any longer. The art department worked with the stunt department and the mechanical special effects department to carefully choreograph each stunt many of which were filmed at 80 kilometers per hour at the least. Approximately, and this is George Miller's approximation, 90% of the effects in Fury Road are practical. Over 150 stunt performers, including several from Cirque du Soleil, were hired for the detailed stunt work and acrobatics. The idea for this movie ultimately was, if the apocalypse started tomorrow, what would survive? What could be repurposed for war? So that meant that anything to do with computers, any sort of AI, anything from the Mitchells versus the machines, basically, was out of this movie. And anything that was durable, hard-wearing, mechanical, anything that could stand a fair chance of being utilised in this post-apocalyptic future wasteland. You'll notice there aren't really any machines in this movie. There's no electricity to speak of. Everything is powered by humans. Humans are the commodities in this movie. They are the batteries to power the Citadel. They are the tools by which Immortan Joe keeps his power. The women who produce the mother's milk to feed Immortan Joe and his children. And the women he keeps locked away from the toxic wasteland to produce the perfect heirs. Everything in this movie is based around either mechanical tools or human tools. And in this world, guitars are also flamethrowers. I can't not bring up the Doof Wagon, which is a great name, actually. Doof Wagon and the Doof Warrior. Because you will know immediately who the Doof Warrior is. Because he's the guy who plays a guitar that spits out flame. I did not make those names up either. They are genuine names from the movie. I feel like I have to add that in because Doof Wagon and Doof Warrior is definitely the sort of thing that I would make up, but I have not made it up. So the Doof Wagon and the Doof Warrior, both completely practical effects, including the flames. I mean, it's awesome, isn't it? Let's be honest. 
that shot of the doof warrior playing a guitar that shoots out flame is awesome and there are so many defining shots in this movie but i think that's one of the most memorable shots in the movie as soon as you see that you know it's fury road and that's one of the really great things about this movie is there's so many shots individual shots even stills from this movie that you would just look at and go that's fury road you just know, because it's so well done. I mean, it doesn't mean that everything in Fury Road is practical. It still contains 2000 visual effects shots led by VFX company Elora. The colour saturation where the desert is shown in vivid orange during the day and the cool blues at night makes the movie feel hotter or cooler than it would if the saturation wasn't so obvious. Effects work was also done to alter the lighting, weather, terrain and plate composition. And obviously as well, Charlize Theron's prosthetic arm was also CG. But one of the beauties of this movie is the CG is used so sparingly that when we do get it, it never feels out of place. Nothing in this movie feels out of place in this world. And that's really how movies should use CG. I mean, they don't, obviously, because so many movies rely on it. And I feel like... I can't constantly berate CG because some of my favourite movies are pretty much completely CG. But this is a movie that does everything so perfectly, but it looks so great because of the sparing use in CG. And I feel like Mad Max Fury Road is a movie that will definitely 100% stand the test of time. I feel like this movie will be a movie that people will talk about in 50 years as being one of the genuine greats of the 2010s era because I think it's still going to look fantastic and that's all down to this production it's all down to George Miller and his vision it's just it's just phenomenal and just on the cinematography because it's a beautiful looking movie so cinematographer John Searle came out of retirement to work on Fury Road his camera crew used six Arri Alexa pluses and four Alexa M's as well as Canon EOS 5Ds and Olympus Pen EP5s for the action footage with the idea that the focus on the shot was always was always central for each scene. The action in this movie is always in the foreground and always explicit. This is an action movie and it's shot like an action movie. Again, there's, there's so much brilliance in this movie. But I'd be remiss if I didn't mention why I personally appreciate The Majesty of Fury Road. And that's obviously all of the things that I've mentioned thus far. But... For me, personally, one of the reasons why I appreciate this movie so much is because of the focus on women in this movie. Now, this particular post-apocalyptic wasteland is not a safe haven for women. They're routinely abused. Immortan Joe keeps his wives, I use that term very loosely, as breeders, basically because they're healthy women with no deformities and he wants a male heir. The Citadel is the pure definition of patriarchal control over women, but not just women either. Anyone deemed lesser in society, so anyone poor, weak, disabled, is treated with contempt in this world. Immortan Joe, as a leader, is reviled and feared, but he's all that these people have. He's their only source of water, and this power he wields over the Citadel is basically with an iron fist you know that he's controlling these people with fear. So when you have a series like Mad Max, which has three very traditionally masculine stories, and then you add a fourth movie that's so focused on the stories of women, and to all intents and purposes, sidelining the titular Max for Furiosa, it's an important and interesting choice for a franchise that's so ingrained in masculinity. Because in this world, Max really doesn't have a cause. You know, he's been a cop, he's been a road warrior, and he's gone beyond the Thunderdome. But who is he now? What good is he to anyone? 
He gets captured immediately and realised to be worth something to the war boys as a universal blood donor. But other than his blood, he has no reason to do anything for anyone in this world. And this is where Furiosa is, excuse the pun, imperative, because she has something worth fighting for, which is freedom. Not just for her, but for five young women imprisoned by Immortan Joe, routinely raped. And two of these women are pregnant as well. These women deserve to be free and deserve to have their babies grow up free. And it's something that always kind of sticks with me because for centuries, women have been these subservient creatures here to bend to the will of men. They've only been there to marry, to have the babies, to raise those babies. And this is a future where the repression of the past has come back and a warlord has surfaced to exert his control over everything in this world, including and specifically the women of this world. It's somewhat dystopian, sure, but women still don't have complete control and autonomy over their bodies, even in the here and now. While we don't live under a tyrannical dictatorial warlord, or do we, the world is still male-dominated. It still leans towards the rights of men over the rights of women, the voices of men over the voices of women, and women still have to band together to make any sort of difference. Because it's a stone-cold fact that the voice of one man is heard, but the voice of one woman is often ignored. And so while the men in this story work singularly to simply enact the will of or gain the impressive eye of Immortan Joe, the women actually work together. We see it in Furiosa and the wives. We see it in the Volvellini too, a group of women working together to try and build a better world, despite this world constantly letting them down. The men in the story, namely Max and Nux, have their own demons, they have their own weaknesses, Max is a loner with no ideology. Nux is essentially a slave, desperate for recognition by the warlord who promises glory in exchange for death. Both are fueled by the toxicity of not only their surroundings, but also what's expected of them in these surroundings as men. And both learn to be vital support to the cause of these women. And in essence, it becomes the one pure thing that they have. And it becomes the one pure thing that bonds them to these women. And one of the most astonishing things is if I think about this movie, obviously there's so much that we don't know about the history of the Citadel, the history of Immortan Joe, the history of Furiosa, and I'm going to come to the prequel comics a bit later, but what always strikes me is the work that Furiosa must have put in for years to gain the implicit trust of Immortan Joe is something that obviously the movie doesn't touch on at all, but something that was immediately apparent to me because she must be one of his most trusted advisors. She has been planning this for a long time. She could have been possibly planning this for years. Countless wives could have come and gone during that time. Perhaps even those who are producing the mother's milk were, at one time, going to be freed by Furiosa. And another thing I love about this movie, talking of Furiosa specifically, her amputated arm is never paid any attention. I don't really want to even call it a disability in the sense that she's not actually physically disabled by it. It's an impairment. It doesn't take away any of her power or any of her glory. She uses her mechanical arm to do more than a real arm and hand ever could. We don't get a backstory, but like with the wives, I don't think we need that story. So many characters in this movie have physical impairments. Many characters have artificial means to deal with their impairments. Rictus Erectus has his breathing tanks. Corpus Colossus has a wheelchair. Immortan Joe himself has a body that's decaying, kept alive by prosthetics, breathing apparatus and a face mask. And this is a side of Immortan Joe that he's never going to show his people. Because to his people, he's a god. 
He doesn't want the truth of his physical impairments out, and nor does he want their autonomy. And this is a stark contrast to Furiosa, who's not afraid to show herself without her mechanical arm. She takes it off often, and instead of using it to show a fake shell to the world, she uses it to drive the war rig and provide sanctuary for the women who need her. Make no mistake, this movie may be called Mad Max Fury Road, but it's about the women. These women, led by the always exquisite Charlize Theron. I am a huge fan of her on this podcast. I've talked about her in Atomic Blonde. I'd argue that this is one of the defining roles of her career. And I feel like this is the movie that people are gonna most remember her for. And there were reports on set of a feud between Charlize Theron and Tom Hardy. It's been confirmed that both struggled with the extremes of filming and that life imitated art very much when it came to this movie. Not that method acting was done on purpose, but the characters reluctantly find common ground, and so did Theron and Hardy. But you know, when all you see is sand for six months, it's a hard environment to make friends in. They were uncomfortable, they were stressed, but ultimately they're both professionals, and they were passionate about making the best film possible. The relationship we see on screen works, despite and possibly because of the real life stresses. And ultimately, the so-called feud, in inverted commas, hasn't actually resulted in any animosity. Theron states that she has the ultimate respect for Hardy as an actor and as a person. And Hardy has stated Theron is brilliant and he'd love to work with her again. So it seems like any sort of so-called feud is possibly slightly overblown. But I do have to say that it's actually a bit of a shame that they won't be working together on any future Mad Max projects because... I genuinely think that this is a wonderful partnership and I would have loved to see more stories with Max and Furiosa. I don't think that would work in the context of the story about this particular world because I feel like they would never see each other again. He's done what he needs to do for her and for the wives, taking them back to the Citadel and giving them their power back. And then he moves on to something else. So I don't think in the context of the story that they would ever see each other again. But... Oh God, I really want it. <laughs> I really, really want it. Right, let's move on to the obligatory Keanu reference. So this is a part of the podcast where I try to link the movie that I'm featuring with Keanu Reeves. Obviously, Keanu Reeves is not in this movie. But what I did find was in 2016, a dystopian thriller directed and written by Anna Lily Amipour called The Bad Batch came out. It starred Suki Waterhouse, Jason Momoa and Keanu Reeves. And it's basically about a future population banished to a dry, garbage-filled wasteland. One of the reviews that I found described it as echoing Mad Max. So that's enough of a link for me. Plus, Keanu plays a cult-like leader called The Dream, which is apt because The Dream, hello. And I have to say, I would definitely join that cult. Let's talk about the music of Mad Max Fury Road because... Due to the very convoluted history behind the production, Hans Zimmer, John Powell and Marco Beltrami were all attached at one point to score the movie, but the final musical score belongs to Junkie XL, aka Thomas Holkenberg, the same guy who scored Deadpool, which is episode 102 of this podcast, by the way, and Junkie XL has also been confirmed to score Furiosa, and I'm going to come to Furiosa a bit later as a quote-unquote sequel to this movie which is going to be awesome because let's be honest the score to this movie is awesome so we've talked about a very convoluted history with regards to the production 
It took many, many, many years to even get filmed. And after a two-year post-production schedule, Mad Max Fury Road finally premiered at the TCL Chinese Theatre in Los Angeles on the 7th of May 2015. It also screened at the 68th Cannes Film Festival on the 14th of May. And it was finally released wide on the 15th of May 2015 in the US. And it faced some surprising competition at the box office. Because this movie opened at number two at the US box office behind a movie that you would not expect would beat this movie. And that was Pitch Perfect 2. And Pitch Perfect 2 made over $20 million more that first week than Mad Max Fury Road did. It did, however, do enough to beat Avengers Age of Ultron into number three that week. And obviously I've also done an episode on Avengers Age of Ultron. It's episode 98. But I think it's safe to say that the general reception to Mad Max Fury Road critically, we're going to come to critics in a bit, was glowing and flawless, but financially was not what was expected. Obviously, no one expected Pitch Perfect 2 to beat it at the box office. And financially, it was made on a budget of $150 million. And Mad Max Fury Road was considered a financial disappointment because it only brought in, say only, but anyway, $375.6 million worldwide. It's estimated that Fury Road lost 20 to $40 million for Warner Brothers. But, you know, sometimes truly great films don't do so well at the box office. It's something that we've seen countless times. And to be honest, sometimes really bad films do great at the box office. Not that I'm suggesting Pitch Perfect 2 is awful. I'm a huge fan of that first Pitch Perfect movie, by the way. But, you know, if you're talking about a quality cinematic experience, Fury Road is definitely superior to Pitch Perfect 2. But it is what it is. People obviously really wanted to see a second Pitch Perfect movie more than they wanted to see Mad Max Fury Road. When it came to the home release of this movie, so a home release on DVD and Blu-ray was announced by George Miller. And he also said it would include a version in black and white. But when the Blu-ray came out, the black and white version was absent. So a new version called Mad Max Black and Chrome, which is the black and white version, was made without the involvement of cinematographer John Searle. And that was released on Blu-ray and DVD in October 2016 and is seen by many as the definitive version of the movie. Very similarly to Logan Noir, which I talked about in the episode on Logan. Logan Noir is seen as the definitive version of Logan and... Mad Max Fury Road Black and Chrome is seen as the definitive version of Mad Max Fury Road. And I've mentioned, obviously, that the movie didn't do as well as expected financially. But critically, this was an absolute critical darling. It was named by many critics as one of the best films of 2015. It's the 19th greatest film of the 21st century, according to a 2016 BBC critics poll and the 19th best film of the century so far by The New York Times. It's been praised for its acting, screenplay, choreography, stunts, production design, direction and costumes, as well as its depiction of women and the non-stigmatising portrayal of physical and psychological disabilities. Mad Max Fury Road received 10 nominations at the 88th Academy Awards, winning six for Best Film Editing, Best Production Design, Best Costume Design, Best Makeup and Hairstyling, Best Sound Mixing and Best Sound Editing. It was also nominated for Best Picture, which it lost to Spotlight. Best Director, which it lost to The Revenant. Best Cinematography, which it also lost to The Revenant. And Best Visual Effects, which it lost to Ex Machina. It won the most awards that evening. 
And it was nominated for a total of 225 awards and it won 104 of those awards. I mentioned prequel comics as well. So there were prequel comics that came out. There was Nux and Immortan Joe number one, Furiosa number one, Mad Max number one, Mad Max number two. It was a limited comic series created by George Miller, Nico Lothoris and Mark Sexton and published between May to August 2015. It consisted of four issues and focused on the history of several characters. The issues focusing on Nux, Immortan Joe and Max were positively received. The issue on Furiosa was criticised for its depictions of rape and the characterisation of Furiosa and some of the other female characters. I have not read any of these comics, so I'm basically just going on what I've read online. But the version of Furiosa that I've read about in this particular prequel does not feel like the Furiosa that we get in the movie. But again, this could possibly be something that the Furiosa movie might potentially go into. I don't know. Anyway, getting ahead of myself, I'll talk about Furiosa movie in a bit. Due to ongoing legal disputes between Warner Brothers and George Miller on the final cost of Fury Road and bonuses owed, we never did see a sequel to Fury Road. And as of right now, the proposed sequel, Mad Max The Wasteland, is on indefinite hold. Charlize Theron has always insisted that she would be up for returning. Tom Hardy actually originally signed a three-picture deal, but it looks like Tom Hardy will not be reprising his role of Mad Max anytime soon, although I hope that that changes. And as I said, a prequel focusing on Furiosa was announced in December 2020, but not with Charlize Theron reprising her role. Originally, they did think of de-aging her, but this idea was scrapped by George Miller after seeing The Irishman, Although arguably the technology is there, I mean Samuel L. Jackson still looked great in Captain Marvel for instance, it was decided that the best idea would be to recast the young Furiosa and the extremely talented and brilliant Anya Taylor-Joy was announced as Furiosa in Mad Max Furiosa which is scheduled for a 2023 release. Honestly, it's a real shame Charlize isn't involved but Anya Taylor-Joy is such a fantastic actor. I feel like it's probably still going to be really good. I would love to see more of Furiosa's story, how she became so entrenched in Immortan Joe's system, how she gained his trust and became Imperator Furiosa. One thing that I don't want to see, genuinely, I don't want to see how she lost her arm because it doesn't matter. Stuff like that, it, it just doesn't matter. It always reminds me, and I feel like this is a bit off topic, but it always reminds me of that scene in Solo, where we find out how Han Solo got his name. It's one of those throwaway scenes, but to me, it doesn't matter how Han Solo became Han Solo, because that's just who he is. We don't need an explanation of Han Solo. And again, exactly the same with Furiosa. We don't need to know how she loses her arm. So I really hope the Furiosa movie goes more into the backstory of Furiosa, how she got to the Citadel, and the story about her being abducted as a child, and all of that. All of that stuff is really interesting, but no, don't tell me how she lost her arm because we don't need to know. Anyway, you've heard my thoughts on Mad Max Fury Road because I've gone on for quite a while about it. So let's have a listen to what everyone else thinks. And we're going to start with the patrons of this podcast. Uh, and we're going to start with, not Andy for a change, we're going to start with Derek and Laurel at the Midnight Myth who say... Well, we're going to put ourselves on blast as the only two people in the world who don't care for this movie. We were impressed with the production design and appreciate the presence of a storyline about women's liberation, but it fell apart in the execution for us. We couldn't connect to any of the characters and we firmly believe that Tom Hardy is the most overrated actor working today. 
Meanwhile, throwaway references to Norse mythology without any context or complexity felt pandering and devoid of nuance. Love the attempt to make a futuristic society somewhat informed by that mythology, but the execution ultimately came across as lazy. It's also hard to make a movie interesting when the entire plot is drive straight, turn left, drive straight. Apologies to Charlize Theron, who is a goddess and can do no wrong. Also, a fiery metal guitar on a monster truck is indeed very cool. And Derek and Laurel are the hosts of the wonderful, fantastic podcast, The Midnight Myth. Their podcast is basically all about mythology and philosophy and how those topics bubble up into pop culture. So when they're talking about the mythology behind Mad Max, this is something that I know literally nothing about, but it's something that they do know something about. So if you are interested in really, really interesting discussions about movies and about history and mythology and philosophy, then please check out The Midnight Myth. It's genuinely one of my favourite podcasts. So please check them out. And we're going to move over to Andy now because... Andy always has something to say on this podcast. So, Andy says, It doesn't seem right that a follow-up to a movie released 30 years prior could be it and the rest of the series superior in every conceivable way. Visually, Fury Road is stunning, complete with Derek and Laurel's aforementioned fiery metal guitar guy, who are using the selling point of sceptics of this movie. The real showstopper is the tale of female empowerment embodied by Furiosa, the real star of the movie. She was a shepherd for the other women, showing true heart and soul throughout the film. I haven't watched the noir version of this movie, but that might just give me something to do this summer. And obviously, if you're a regular listener, then Andy comments every episode. So you know he's one of the hosts of Geek Salad. And you should know by now that you should listen to Geek Salad because... They basically talk about everything to do with movies, music, TV. I'm actually going to be guesting on their podcast very soon. As of recording this podcast, I'm going to be on their podcast next weekend. And I think the episode is due out some point in August. So listen out to that. We're going to be talking about the movies of 1991, which is very exciting because the last time I was on, I talked about the movies of 1990. So we're moving through the years Eventually, I'm hoping to get to 1999 because that is my favourite year of movies ever. But yes, you should also listen to Geek Salad uh, and links to both The Midnight Myth and Geek Salad will be in the show notes. We also have a comment from Brendan who says, Fury Road is so good that calling it a modern masterpiece feels like selling it short. It took more than 30 years, but someone finally topped the truck chase from Spielberg's Raiders of the Lost Ark by making car chases the movie but with a righteous post-apocalyptic sci-fi setting of feminist heavy metal fantasy aesthetic that's not quite like anything we've ever seen. Also, there's a guy with a guitar that shoots fire. 11 out of 10. I can't deny any of the facts that you're saying there, Brendan. And finally, we have Dan, who starts by saying he missed the deadline, which technically you did miss the deadline. However, because I'm behind on this episode, Dan, I'll include your comment anyway. And he basically goes on to say, All I was going to say is that Paul from the Countdown podcast doesn't shut up about it. Which clearly he must be talking about Mad Max Fury Road. But alternatively, if Paul from the Countdown podcast doesn't shut up about verbal diorama, I mean, that's also pretty great. And more patron comments. We have a comment from Mark who says, The best action film of the last 10 years for my money. The Fast and Furious franchise could learn a bit from Mr Miller's dedication to the art of practical effects. The world is fleshed out by grotesques, each of whom have a backstory you wish you'd never learned. In spite of the name, this isn't Max's story, it's Furiosa and the wives who are front and centre here. 
Fleeing and eventually turning on their oppressors is a tale of female empowerment and smashing misogyny. Max is merely along for the ride. Parentheses, near Max. The film gets the adrenaline pumping from the start and doesn't stop until five minutes from the end. I was exhausted leaving the cinema, yet ready to go straight back in. Mission Impossible, eat your heart out. And Mark and his co-host John, they host 100 Things We Learn From Film. It's basically a podcast where you can find out up to 100 things that they've learned from a film. Sometimes those things are really random, but every time it's really super interesting. So please take a listen to their podcast. I guarantee you will enjoy it. And the final patron comment is from Sam. And Sam says, A modern classic. I would think that six years on, the cracks would start to show, but they don't. From start to finish, it's a spectacular thrill ride, and I don't care that the story is simply, run away, wait, let's go back. Charlie's crushes. Five billion flaming guitars out of 10,000. I mean, that is a proper hyperbole sandwich that you've given this movie, Sam. And Sam is from the podcast Movie Reviews in 20 Qs, where they basically ask 20 weird and wonderful questions about movies. Movies like Mad Max Fury Road, because I know that they have done an episode on this particular movie. And so that beauty is in the show notes. You guys are so welcome. Links to all patron podcasts are also in the show notes. And a massive thank you to the patrons for getting involved in this episode. But we're going to move on to Twitter. We're going to start with a comment to a patron comment, but not from a patron. So I've stuck him at the top of the Twitter comments instead, because the wonderful Nicholas Haskins from at Nikolai's Kitchen commented on Sam's comment about 5 billion flaming guitars out of 10,000 and just simply said, somehow this rating is still too low, (laughs) which I mean, is this is this a movie that Nick Haskins actually likes? Oh, my God. Crazy, crazy times that we live in, guys. (laughs) I'm only joking. I I love you, Nick Haskins. At Stuart Garside says, The film is bonkers in a good way. Bonkers cars, bonkers costumes and bonkers cast list. And it all works visually beautiful. At the cinema, guys said, Easily my favourite movie of 2015. It was such a great return to this character and this world. At or underscore MFC says, Everyone must witness the craft of world building in this epic. From a few words, by my deeds I honour him, V8, we are introduced to a religion that we come to understand without ever being explained. We see how they worship their machines, relics of times long gone. Fingers interlaced like engine pistons, schematics scarred into Nux's chest, the tattooing and branding of spare parts like Max, and of course the chrome spray cans. It all contributes to give depth to these disposable, cami-crazy war boys, shiny and chrome. At Spy Hards said, One of the best action films of the last decade, proof that practical effects always beat CG. Also, it contains arguably one of Charlize Theron's best performances to date, a must-watch for anyone that loves film. And you'll remember in the patron comments that one of our patrons, Dan, mentioned Paul from the Countdown podcast. And so we did actually get a comment from at the Countdown PC, who says, Easily the best film released since we started our podcast in early 2015. It's one of only two films I've given five stars released in that time frame. An amazing, gorgeously shot, heart-pumping, adrenalised adventure, and with an incredible junkie XL score to boot. At Callum the Film Guy says, 
One of the best films of the 2010 decade, impeccably filmed and directed with adrenaline-charged creativity and visuals, all while delivering a compelling story and characters rooted in feminism, environmentalism and anti-capitalism. Just terrific. At YNF Movie Pod said, Mediocre! No, I actually love this movie, including that line. And the Doof Warrior is amazing. Still hoping to get a Furiosa spin-off. And finally, at Chicklet Pod said, Visually stunning. I remember watching this when it first came out and fully expecting to not have any idea what was going on because I never saw the original. But the exposition was so well integrated into the story that I never had any questions. And unfortunately, no comments on Instagram or Facebook for Mad Max Fury Road, which is disappointing. However, Twitter, you guys have come out in full force to support this movie. I'm so grateful. So a massive thank you, as always, to everyone who's commented, to the patrons, to everyone on Twitter. Thank you so much. I'm so happy that everyone, pretty much everyone, because, <laughs> you know, the Midnight Myth, not keen. Uh, but pretty much everyone adores Mad Max Fury Road as much, if not more, than I do. So I'm really, truly grateful and thank you everyone for your comments. When I bought my new TV, which I bought towards the end of last year, this was the first movie that I chose to watch. That fact will remain forever in existence of me owning this TV because this movie never disappoints. Uh, it certainly never disappoints on my new TV because it looks beautiful. But Fury Road never disappoints me. Each viewing I get something new or I notice something new. I've always felt more attuned to Furiosa's story than to Max because to me and I think to many people just based on the comments that we've heard she is the focus of the movie. She is the true hero of the movie although arguably she couldn't succeed without Max. Um, their fraught relationship remains one of the most interesting and complex parts of Mad Max Fury Road and a lesser movie would have them fall in love or have Max take over Furiosa's mission and save the women. That this movie allows Furiosa to play her role with Max as essentially the support to make it happen rather than the enforcer makes this for me one of the greatest modern blockbusters, even though it kind of wasn't. Add the outstanding practical effects, the minimal but effective CGI, uh, and this might be just a chase movie to some, but it's so expertly put together with amazing stunts and cinematography. As I said, I waited a long time to feature this because I wanted to do it justice. Because to me, there's nothing more outlandish and splendid and deranged and cacophonous than this. And really, the only thing I can end with, with is, oh, what a day. What a lovely day. Thank you for listening. As always, I would love to hear your thoughts on Mad Max Fury Road. If you do enjoy this episode or Verbal Diorama just generally, you can help it grow and be noticed by others by leaving a rating or review on Apple Podcasts or Podchaser. Ideally, five stars would be awesome. You can just simply tell a friend or family member about this podcast. You could also help them download it or listen to it. But also you can retweet or like posts on social media because that also helps as well to kind of get the word out. But if you like this episode on Mad Max Fury Road specifically, you might also like one of the following episodes. So I mentioned it earlier, episode three, which is on Dread. And really for the 2000 AD link more than anything. But Dread is such an interesting movie in so many ways. Again, didn't do so well at the box office, but really genuinely so deserving of your time. So brilliant, so super stylized, so incredibly violent. I mean, obviously, Mad Max Fury Road is R-rated for quite a lot of 
graphic violence. I mean, Immortan Joe basically gets his face ripped off. But Dread is, I mean, quite a spectacle, I have to say. So, I mean, if you do like Fury Road, there's every possibility that you will also like Dread. I'd also like to recommend episode 69, Atomic Blonde. I mean, obviously for Charlize Theron, because she's incredible in this movie. She's also incredible in Atomic Blonde as well, which is a very neo-noir neo kind of spy action movie. She kicks a lot of ass in that movie. And her career is so fascinating to me because she can do romantic comedies. She can do spy movies. She can do action. She can do adventure. She can do everything. But yeah, if you have not seen Atomic Blonde and you're a big fan of Charlize Theron, then please watch Atomic Blonde because it's great. And it's also got a cracking soundtrack too. The other movie that I'd like to recommend is, again, kind of a very dystopian, futuristic movie. And that is episode 92, Children of Men. Again, it's very centred around women and especially... But instead of being about women being there essentially to breed, it's about infertility um, and about what that does to a world without babies. Whereas obviously Mad Max Free Road is all about making the babies. Ugh, it sounds so gross. Immortan Joe is so gross. The whole situation is really gross. But Children of Men, it's kind of different, but also kind of not different. And it's, again, such a great movie, so wonderfully shot, great cinematography. Alfonso Cuaron, I genuinely believe it's his masterpiece. And I genuinely believe that this is George Miller's masterpiece as well. And finally, the last episode, episode 104, The Mitchells versus The Machines, because it references this movie, so why not? It is very different, you know, it's fun, it's colourful, it's animated. <laughs> but, you know, if you're going to become a apocalyptic road warrior then why not do it in a beige 80s car with your family give me feedback on my episode recommendations let me know don't come for me about the mitchells versus the machines <laughs> i know someone will it is a bit weird that i've recommended it i'm not gonna lie let's talk about the next episode because the next episode's kind of a bit special actually this is a special episode every episode is special in its own way but the next one is a twitter request so i put out a poll a ridiculously close one, as it happens. And basically, I asked listeners on Twitter, what would you like me to cover? I got some suggestions. I put the best ones in a Twitter poll. And the choices in the poll were Jaws, Shaun of the Dead, The Crow and Pulp Fiction. It was a very close race. The winner beat the second place 29.6% to 28.2%. So the second place was Shaun of the Dead. And the first place, the winner of the poll, was Jaws. So... Basically, I'm going to be covering the first true summer blockbuster, the movie that made us all afraid to go into the water, and the movie that vilified the great white shark and basically spawned every single shark movie ever made afterwards. Jaws is coming to verbal diorama. So all I have to say is... Da -da. Da -da. Da -da -da and etc etc i apologize profusely to john williams for murdering his wonderful score if you do want to follow me on social media you can do so i am at verbal diorama on twitter facebook and instagram you can also sign up to support me on patreon at verbaldiorama.com patreon and as always a huge thank you to the patrons of verbal diorama they are simon e Sade, hardy l claudia simon b laurel derek Jason, Kristin, Kat, 
Andy, Mike, Griff, Luke, Emily, Michael, Scott, Mark, Brendan, Ian, Lisa, Dan and Sam. If I was going to go on an apocalyptic road warrior mission in the war rig, then I would want to go with those guys because... I mean, they're pretty awesome. They support this podcast. I do also have a merch store, which is verbaldiorama.com slash merch, which is going to be updated soon. If you want to get in touch, I'm verbaldiorama at gmail.com. You can also pop over to verbaldiorama.com and fill out the contact form, or you can just pop over to Film Stories. I write for Film Stories for the magazine and also online as well. So please check out the Film Stories magazine. So please check out the website, click on some links and whatnot, generate some money. And you can also buy copies of the magazine as well. And finally, where must we go? We who wander this wasteland in search of our better selves. Bye. Blue vision of-